Hey, it's Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. Today is a real treat because we get to speak with three-time Olympian, two-time world championships medalist, and former American record holder at 1,500 meters, two miles, and 5,000 meters, Shannon Roberry. Shannon's times and accomplishments deserve to be the lead, but they are far from what define her. She's also been a competitive Irish dancer who believes that performing is central to excelling. She's the founder of a nonprofit, Imagining More, that's promoting art and athletics for women. And she's a member of Parity, an organization seeking to get equal athlete pay for women. Last but not least, she's a mom to her beautiful daughter, Sienna. We talk about her running career, but we spent most of our conversation on the non-running aspects of her life, on what defines her and how she balances her interests as she attempts to qualify for her fourth Olympics in Tokyo as a 37-year-old mom. Shannon is such a dynamic and well-rounded person, it was refreshing to learn more about who she is and what drives her today. But before we get to it, let me remind any new listeners about who we are at Gobi More. At Gobi More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. So how does a clothing company help people chase their dreams? I'm glad you asked. The clothes we wear are like every other part of our physical environment. They not only represent us, they reinforce who we are and who we're committed to being. When you wear a Gobi More shirt, you're wearing your personal commitment to Gobi More, to chase those dreams. And what better way to show someone you support them than to give them a physical symbol of your belief in them? We want the words Gobi More to remind you of your dreams every time you see them. As for this podcast, this is our chance to explore what it means to Gobi More with the people who inspire us, and to share those stories and strategies with you. As always, if you have any feedback, you can email me at brian at gobimore.co or hit us up on social media. All right, here's our conversation with Shannon Robery. All right, Shannon Robery, welcome to the Go Be More podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here today. Yeah, Shannon, I really appreciate you. I have to admit that I was so worried that we weren't going to be able to have you on, and I really wanted to have you on as a guest. So the fact that we're all sitting here together today, I feel like I want to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> I know lots of moving pieces, right? But we made it happen. Go us. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all, we all have jobs. We're all working. We all have families and stuff and, and the scheduling and, and everything. And we're all in different time. Well, I think you and I are in the same time zone, but Brian's over in Japan. So it's always <laughs> kind of a circus getting it together. But I'm so excited, mm-hmm. you know, through the research, there's so many things that I don't know about you. And we've gotten to know each other here and there over the years. I mean, your career is extended way beyond what mine has. So I'm so excited just to explore so much of your journey, especially a lot of the stuff that I wasn't aware of before we did some research here. So thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs> I'm happy to be here too. So um, as we were talking about beforehand, the opportunity to talk about things that don't normally get covered in those quick post-race interviews, you know, so yeah. it'll be fun. Well, Shannon, can you just tell us real quick, where, where are you situated right now? Yeah, perfect. So I am in San Francisco, California. Uh, That's where I actually was born and raised. I went to Duke for college and then came back to the West Coast, was in Portland for a bit, and in 2017 moved home. I've settled down here with my husband. We have a daughter who will be three in June. My parents live less than a mile away, which has just been such a godsend pre-COVID for sure, but especially during COVID, they've been able to really, you know, all hands on deck and be such a huge support to us, but also such a wonderful thing to have my daughter be raised by her grandparents, as well as her parents, like I was, I grew up in the same house as my grandma, who I called Noni. And, you know, that was something that I really wanted to create for her if possible. 
I think that's fantastic. I actually really do want to talk to you about being a mom and stuff. I feel like we'll get to that a little bit, a little bit more later because we'll start a little earlier. I actually, I, I loved reading about your relationship with your Noni and I wanted to ask you, because it's my understanding that she got you into Irish dancing when you were a kid. Is that right? Yeah, it is. So the backstory there is I broke my leg in kindergarten, like the first month of school and running through the playground and a boy kicked a ball and I did the splits over it. And (laughs) my whole left leg, I had a spiral fracture in my tibia and a full leg cast. And my grandma, who was born in San Francisco, but full Irish, wanted to put me in dance to strengthen my bones once I got the cast off. And I came upon Irish dancing. There's a large Irish community in the Sunset District of San Francisco, which is the area that I grew up in. And so I started at the age of five and just fell in love with it. The cool thing with Irish dancing, you know, gives you this um, kind of the repetition of the, the dances. It's about the same length as an 800 meter repeat, but it's a lot more precise. You're doing soft shoe, which is like ballet. You're doing hard shoe, which is like tap but you're also getting to hone your skills at competition. And so I self-selected into these more kind of, you know, quantifiable performance-based competition. And really by the time I got to high school, the core strength, the fast twitch development, and also the mindset that dancing helped develop in me was a huge asset when I started running as a freshman. I find that really interesting. And I guess I wanted to ask you generally, what does an Irish dance competition entail? What do you have to do to win an Irish dance competition? (laughs) Yeah, so it's fun. The local competitions are called FESHES, F-E-I-S, Gaelic. Nothing nothing sounds like how it's written. But (laughs) for Irish dancing, you have local, you have regional, and you have national competitions. You also have worlds. When you're really little, you're just competing in individual dances. So the jig or the reel, and you get little medals. I have like a thousand of these little medals. And then as you go up the ranks based on your performance, you get into higher competition categories. And ultimately the highest level of competition is called the open competition. And the open competition, it's your performance is scored on three different performances. And then you're basically ranked based on that. So what was in retrospect, such a great developmental tool for me. When I was performing, it was me on stage, either with one other dancer or by myself, performing a choreographed routine that was one and a half to two and a half minutes long in front of three judges who are watching me and taking notes and scoring me. And it was intense, but I also loved it. And I loved seeing how I ranked. Moving to running, I loved the fact that it was less subjective. Whoever crossed the line first was the winner, give or take. We've had some crazy things with <laughs> yeah. drugs and jumping and stuff, but generally whoever crosses the line first is the winner, which that is a lot easier to wrap your head around. So yeah, for dancing, it's you're just qualifying over the years. And ultimately at the national competition, you can qualify for worlds. I had the privilege of competing a couple times at the world championships, which at the time were in Ireland. Now they host them in different places, but it was fun. You got to travel and there's a big community. And like I said, unbeknownst to me, I was training all these skill sets that would really serve me later in life. I'm so jealous. I'm so <laughs> jealous. I actually love what you got to experience with this part of your childhood. And obviously you've done it for so many years now. I got to tell you, I got introduced to square dancing and nice. <laughs> ballroom dancing and stuff when I was in elementary school. I don't know how or why. I don't remember the teacher that did it. But for like three or four years, I was part of this small group of students that was doing like square dancing and ballroom dancing and waltzing. 
and we would go and do these performances for, I don't even think Brian knows this. No, I don't know this. I'm, this is totally <laughs> new. <Yeah. laughs> so, I got This is like, this is so cool, Shannon, because I, I loved it. I yeah. loved it. The and I'm not saying I'm and usher. The community or, and like, oh. it's just so energizing. The way, yes, the way that it made me feel. It was so crazy yeah. because to go up there and to do the things and to get the moves down, it gives you confidence when you can actually do it, first of all, but then to do it well and to have like a partner and to do all these movements and to put on a performance. I absolutely loved it. When I got into junior high, that's kind of when it ended. I didn't yeah. have any, I didn't know to ask, I don't think, or, or find a way to continue doing it. But I'm curious what my life would have turned out to be had I continued to go down that road because I absolutely loved it. I guess the thing that I would ask you because of a similar experience, mine was much short lived, but the performance aspect of it, what do you think you took away from just performing that translated into running? Because I believe you could credit a lot of your running success to your experiences with Irish dancing. I do very much. And I still think of competitions like a performance. I mean, even this lifestyle as a professional athlete, as an Olympian, you're not a huge public figure, but a public figure. And there's, yeah. you know, what I think of it in terms of like in the whole spectrum of who I am, I still try to stay authentically me, but I only show a certain amount of myself in certain realms. It's yeah. adjusting what I'm willing to share based on the situation. And so going into these competitions, I take that same sort of approach in terms of mindset and that intensity, that sense of, you know, I love the quote, get well warmed up and let the gun release you from chariots of fire. But it's like, you know, all the work is beforehand. And then the other way I think about running, because I studied theater in college too, is I think of running a lot like improv, where you see an improv actor, and it's all coming just in the moment. And it's easy to think that they just woke up that way. But really, there's so much work behind the scenes that they do to practice and sharpen their instincts and their skills so that when they are on stage, their reaction time is really quick. And I think yeah. that running is a lot like that as well. You do all the training and you put in all the work in all the different ways, not just running, but gym and mental training and so on and so forth. But ultimately, when you're in the race, you know, especially as a middle distance runner where you don't have the lane to yourself. I hear sprinters talk about, you know, this is how I'm going to execute. And they have that ability because they're ideally, if nothing goes crazy, they're in the lane and they just need to execute um, to maximize their fitness. But as any middle distance runner knows, pinballs yeah. and bodies everywhere. And you're trying yep. to think in the moment and make the move and see a few moves ahead. And you do have to be able to improvise and react. And I think that going into those races with that mindset is helpful just in a couple ways. One, to make sure that you're revved up and ready to be in that moment, mm -hmm. but also taking the pressure off of yourself, knowing that you can only plan and prepare so much and that when you're in that race, that you have to just let it happen. And the more that you can be present and react to what's coming around you and utilize those strengths and skills that you've sharpened through training, that's when you have the highest likelihood of success. I, and I think it's beautiful to watch too. Sorry, Brian. No, I think it, it's very much like a work of art as Prefontaine had described, right? You know, mm -hmm. what you're witnessing as a spectator is up to you really. But I mean, if you choose to see it as a performance and you watch the 
athletes out there performing, I say like the track is the canvas and my feet, you know, are the paintbrushes and I'm painting a picture for everybody with the performance that I'm giving. Mm -hmm. And so how you choose to show up mentally is one part, right? In terms of what you give to the audience, the spectator. And the other part too is what's the spectator seeing, right? What are they getting out of it? And if they have a certain perspective, Mm -hmm. it could be a very enjoyable experience. And so I like the idea of thinking of it as a performance, I felt when I made that connection as a senior in college, when I said, I'm performing for these people, I felt like I rose to the occasion. I loved it yeah. more, even more, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how much a shift in mindset can change the outcome. You know, I talk about with training where it's like, if I'm in an environment where I'm having to do a hard workout by myself, it usually feels worse and the times are slower. If I'm in an environment where I'm happy, or even if I'm training by myself, but there's people at the facility with me, I come out of it with better times and feeling happier about it too. So you're right when you say just that shift of perspective can change things so significantly. I also really like that you use this phrase that I'd never heard before, but you said you have to practice that instinct. And I think it's a really interesting phrase because instinct seems like something that you can't change. But, But I think actually you know, like your example of improv was really interesting because you might have an ability, you might have a natural instinct, but you need to refine it. You need to develop it so that you can use it to its full capacity in the moment. And I think that's one of those aspects of training, which is it's easy to, I think you get it like you did with Irish Dance in a performance related venue, because I was going to say this, like my daughters do ice skating and ice skating is a really interesting sport because it's a performance. It's judged. It's subjective. I have these issues with sometimes with like, I I don't understand why they got what score they got and stuff like like that. Who hung out with who at the bar the night before? Like it can be so (laughs) subjective. It's horrible, right? but it's beautiful. But, and they are practicing and practicing and practicing and they're practicing skills and they're practicing how to work and they're practicing, but at the end they get to perform, right? Like they get to just go out there and treat it like, a concert or like a show and not stress as much the score, right? They just know they need to execute. And I really like it. And I I like the concept that something like this is actually a good thing for kids to be doing. You don't need to get into track and field when you're six years old in order to become a track star. Go do Irish dancing, go do figure skating, go do something that lets you perform and work all these other skills that we might not associate directly to a bigger sport, but they refine things like your instinct and they refine things like your ability to work hard or your ability to execute a particular thing. I think it's so fascinating that you put so much energy into it. And honestly, it seems like something that really bonded you to your grandma too. Oh yeah. She would take me to the classes. And like I said, she was all Irish, but had grown up in San Francisco and had never traveled to Ireland. So she got to go with me to the world championships and visit Ireland for the first time. And it was something for my whole family to share and you know, I think that having a family that was willing, my mom had no background in Irish dancing. My mom had no background in running. She never pushed me, my father either. They never pushed me into doing what they wanted me to do. They pushed me to show up and give my best. And they didn't really care what it was. Maybe there were some things they would have said no, but for the most part, they were like, as long as you show up with integrity and give your best effort, that's what we care about. And so it was a ultimately like dance sports have been a bonding experience for my whole family and really have taught me lessons on, you know, the opportunities I want to give my daughter, but how I also want to let her lead. And I really focus on the fundamentals. And I think that's when you're talking about, I don't want my daughter to start running early. I want her to develop in other ways and to work on those fundamental skill sets. I think for me, my background, nobody 
that I'm competing against at the highest level has that same background that I do. And I think it gives me an advantage because I'm coming at competition, but I'm also looking at the sport through a lens that most, if not all of my competitors don't have. And if racing is strategic as well as physical, if I can be thinking in, in ways that my competition can't, that gives me an edge. So I think that there's so much value there. Yeah, I was just going to say really quickly, Brian, I know you were going to ask something or, or say something as well, but I think creativity is so important when it comes to competition. I'm artsy fartsy. You know, I love <laughs> art. I love to write poetry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a romantic. I am terrible at arguing. I mean, I was told I'm not aggressive enough when I turned pro. A very good friend of mine, and I love him, and I, I won't say who he is. I respect him a lot, but he said I wasn't going to be a good professional runner because I wasn't aggressive enough. Or, or like selfish enough. And I said, you know, I'm artsy fartsy. I'm cool with who I am. And I said, but knowing who I am, I think that allows me to get the most out of myself and, and have the experiences that I want to have. And I think because I was that way, I was able to approach, like you're saying, the sport in a way that I think a lot of my competitors or my peers is a guy, you know, same way you're approaching competing against women. I thought the same way you're describing. And I honestly feel like the reason why I made it a big part of it it's because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I love that. <laughs> Shannon, I wanted to ask you here. I, I don't know if there's a professional Irish dancing, if there's a path there, but you chose at high school to switch over to running and to leave. And I'm curious about why you made that change. And you've also credited your high school coach, Andy Chan, with being very instrumental in, in a lot of your success and sort of who you are. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that high school transition. Yeah. So I started running on a whim. Let's see. I, I started dancing at five and I did some soccer in elementary school, like junior high, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade I started. And I was always told that I was fast. And so in high school, first day, freshman year, it was like a half day and I'm not good at sitting still. So I was asking around my friends what they were doing. And one of them said she was heading to cross country practice. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but let me, I'll, I'm oh running. Okay. Like, I think I'll be good at that. And so I showed up and the, the funny story for me is the first day at practice, my coach put me, um, Andy Chan put me with the kids who hadn't been training during the summer because I hadn't. And I think we ran, I want to say five miles. And I was like, you know, pushing the pace and thinking I was just so, like, had it all figured out. And then that evening was like, could barely walk, taking an Epsom salt <laughs> bath, like realizing that running yep. was not as easy as I thought it was, but I did have a natural ability at it. And I continued dancing through my junior year, but Ultimately, even though I think still in my heart of hearts, dance is my favorite. And if I could have, you know, made a career in that, I might have. But the problem with dance as compared to sports is that there's a really natural, as we know, the NCAA system and a really natural way to differentiate yourself. And I didn't know professional running existed, but I knew that running could be a vehicle for me to get into a great college, get a scholarship to college. You know, my parents didn't have money to pay for my college. And so, you know, it would have otherwise been loans and who knows what. So I saw it as a really great opportunity. And so that was why junior year that I made the shift. As far as Andy Chan, I was really fortunate to have him as my coach because he, like my parents, was someone who really was focused on the fundamentals. So, you know, for him, he was as supportive of the best athlete as the worst athlete on the team, if you um, were giving your best effort. So it wasn't about just pure talent. It was about commitment. It was about teamwork. It was about the long-term development over time. And so, you know, he of all my coaches is the one that I've stayed in touch with 
over the years, he comes to the Olympic trials, he's made it to all of the major world championships that I've competed in. And just a really supportive person, but for the right reasons. I see so many college coaches that are like, and I get it, you know, college scholarships are a coveted thing, but some of these coaches are having their athletes run mileage that I think is inappropriate for a young developing body. They're um, having the athletes train at volumes in workouts that is just unhealthy, competing all the time and just really limiting their future potential. So I saw, and I saw it at Duke as well. I had teammates who had been great in high school, but by the time they made it to college, you know, were injured by their freshman year or hated running because it had been just shoved down their throats. And so it's tough because, you know, I was sure I was fortunate that I could be good enough running lower mileage to still earn a college scholarship. But I think really the role of a coach is to lay the fundamentals of if you want to be good, if you want to be great, it's not going to happen at the end of high school and probably not even at the end of college. Uh It's going to happen through year after year of hard work, of grind. And it's teaching those lessons of how to show up and be a good teammate and ultimately reach that mountaintop over years of consistent effort. How much of that from, you know, your successes as a high school and collegiate athlete, would you say lended itself to your success professionally? Like I said, I didn't know professional running existed until late into my college career. And that was a result of my college coach, Kevin Germain, who had done some pro running, had actually worked with GAGS. And I think he knew to put the carrot out there. And I had a redshirt season where I was able to go down to, I think it was the LA, the Long Beach, the Carson meet back when it was Golden League or something. Mm -hmm. And I did a Mm -hmm. 3K and I was like, oh, I could compete in these big stadiums with a lot of people and travel like that kind of stuff. For me, I do get nervous, but also I get a thrill out of the bigger the venue, the more pressure, the higher the stakes, the bigger the lights like that for me is really exciting. So I think that I was fortunate as well. My college coach was also a good guy thinking of the long term development, have a lot of respect for him. And and he kind of like, as I said, put that carrot out there. But I really went to college. I picked Duke because it was the school where I could get the best combo of academics and athletics. Mm -hmm. I get a full scholarship and also get a little further from home. Being from San Francisco, I was like, ooh, East Coast. This is really cool. And I thought that I would be done after college. And here I am in 2021 still running. But but, the other thing that my mom has said that I really respect, you know, she throughout my life had always said, do the things you love and success will find you. And really what the underlying undercurrent of that is, if you're doing something you love, then the work doesn't seem like work and you'll really put your best effort consistently day after day. And so I'm really grateful for that kind of foundation and that willingness on my parents' part to let me find my path. And you know, I had to earn my dancing dress. It was like, if you want the fancy expensive dancing dress, then you need to get up every morning and practice. You know, it wasn't like they would just hand me whatever I wanted. I had to earn it, but it was so much of the things that really form who I am as an athlete were those kind of like human lessons, how to be a good person and how to be a good teammate and how to find success and to overcome obstacles. And I think at its core, first and foremost, my family and that foundation that they built for me. So what you were saying there is really interesting. And I wanted to ask you about 2007, where you suffered a really major stress fracture at a time when it could be kind of a career ending injury. And I'm curious if that had any sort of major impact on how you thought about training and and how you went forward. Yeah, definitely. You know, for me, I think of that really as the turning point in my career. And 
I've always said my successes tend to come after moments that felt like my biggest failures. And as much as I wish that it could be just easy street all the way along, that truly isn't how life really is. And so I think when you get lemons, it's about how can you make that into the best tasting lemonade possible. So for this injury, the backstory was that NCAA indoors of that year of 2007 was this kind of the high for me. I had won my first NCAA title in the mile, came back an hour and a half later, was second in the 3K, was really just coming on strong and feeling excited for that outdoor season and hopeful that I would be able to get a pro contract when my eligibility was done. But about a month after that indoor national race, a kind of tightness in my hip that started out feeling like just a little spot by the month later was resulting in me limping on a run and turned out to be a stress fracture in my left femoral neck. So my left hip, which is pretty serious. And for me at first, it was, I guess I should say the timing of it was in some ways a blessing in that there wasn't any way that I could patch together the rest of the season. I had to just take time off, but that was what I needed. I was fortunate that I did get a shoe contract, but I was also a year out from the Olympic trials and making my first Olympic team in 2008 was of course my goal. And so after feeling my feelings, which I did for a little bit, then I, I really focused on understanding the root of the problem and making Mm. a really thoughtful and patient plan to be back to my best fitness in a year from where I was rather than like, I have to be ready by the fall or I have to be ready by indoors. It was like, okay, let's just go through this recovery process in the way that it needs to be done. Because in April of 2007, we did still have a lot of time to the Olympic trials. And the worst thing that I could do was, you know, go too quick and have setbacks. And so, like I said, getting to the root of the problem, that's where I identified that broken leg I had in kindergarten had resulted in a seven millimeter leg length difference. So it grew back longer. And so I'd always known I had a longer leg, but it was that injury that forced me to really understand what that difference was, where it was. I worked on orthotics. I had never had orthotics before. I got massaged consistently and saw a chiropractor to kind of, you know, when you get a chronic injury, like a stress fracture, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of tightness and that grows over time to the Mm -hmm. point that you get that injury. Mm -hmm. And so first I needed to like, you know, the layers of the onion, I had to undo all of that imbalance and tightness that resulted in the stress fracture. And then I had to build back strength in my core, in my hips. And I think the other thing that was really interesting for a time, I thought, you know, if I didn't have this leg length difference, then my life would have been so much better (laughs) running. I wouldn't have had as many problems. What I ultimately came to realize was that everybody has their thing. Everybody has their Achilles heel. Um, Mm -hmm. And the sooner that you can be okay with that and accept it as like, okay, you and I are doing this together and figure out how you can you know, work with that and minimize the risk of injury. So for me, to this day, I do prehab, I do consistent treatment, I have exercises that focus on that imbalance. And I always am a little higher in my left shoulder. And I always tend to twist because of the leg length difference. But as long as I can stay within that range of acceptable, then I'm good. And I can keep moving forward. And the fun part of the 07 story with the stress fracture is that A year later, after a very slow and diligent process of, you know, it was no running, then I think aqua jogging, then biking, then elliptical, then alter G. And it was from about April until August that I finally ran on the ground. 
but by I think just January or February, I won the pro indoor 3k. And by June, I won the Olympic trials 1500 and made my first Olympic team. So, you Mm -hmm. know, sometimes it's about giving yourself a long enough timeline, having faith that you can get there when the time comes if you just put in the effort and, of course, surround yourself with the right team. But yeah, that was my challenge and outcome. (laughs) I think that that's amazing. And, And the part that stands out to me is the fact that you and I'm, I'm assuming you had people that were advising you as well to take this perspective, but it's one that I can appreciate because I think in many ways, and this is not knocking my support network or the people that I had in my circle, I don't know if enough of the right people in my circle understood things like that, that I needed, you know, to have certain types of perspective, giving me the confidence by explaining it to some extent, like how we should approach certain aspects of my running career. I think a lot of it was just me guessing and figuring it out and getting away with a lot of stuff because I'm not saying I was super talented, but I did stuff that I probably was punching above my weight in many ways. Um, And it's not because I wasn't talented, like the guys I was competing against. It was just, I think I was kind of getting lucky uh, to a certain extent, but the way that you approach that period of time, that's just magical. The fact that it ended up the way that it did and that you then built on that is, I think, such a powerful story. Uh, And I hope people take something away from that. Yeah, I think, you know, when you were speaking, giving you the permission to be patient, the permission to say it doesn't have to be right now, you know. And I think also the other interesting thing for me, when I had my stress fracture, they did the MRI. And of course, there was all kinds of crap going on. Um, (laughs) And in addition to the, the stress fracture, they identified a labral tear. And I remember my first step was to talk to all the people and get all the opinions. But then ultimately, And first and foremost, I had been in North Carolina when I got my injury, but I came back to San Francisco because I knew that my team there was one that I could really trust. My chiropractor, massage therapist, doctors, I felt safer and more confident with their advice. And so that was my first step. But then after going to all the people and getting all the opinions, I remember with the labral tear, they're like, well, we could do this tip surgery where you shave the bone and do all this. And I remember just being like, oh my God. And having the advice of someone that was like, okay, that might be the path you need to go eventually. But first, let's, of all the things that are wrong, let's treat the most obvious one, which is the stress fracture. And if you're still having problems later, then we figure out that other thing. And ultimately treating the stress fracture, understanding the root cause of it so that I could minimize its chance of recurrence. And then having good treatment to keep my hip because the labral tear came from the hip being jammed up and shearing that was going on. So as long as I can keep the hip tracking well, like loose and free, then I've never, knock on wood, it's never been something I've had to worry about. And given my leg length difference, besides that stress fracture in 2007, my only other injury was in 2019, when I had a sacral stress fracture from coming back from maternity too quickly. So, you know, not to say I haven't had little like bits and pieces over the years, but I've been really very healthy. And I credit a lot of that to that kind of reality check and that reset that 2007 forced me to take. Right. I, so I don't want to go too much into competitions because I feel like you cover that in a lot of interviews, I think, and, and stuff. And I really like how this 
transform the way you think about training, right? Simplifying, identifying the key thing, doing it, accepting the time and, and using the time you have to get to the end goal. You have all these things. I'm curious, just generally, you've competed in three Olympics, five world championships, all the big gold meets, diamond league meets and all this stuff. You've done all this stuff. I want to ask a competition related question for you. What is the secret in your mind to getting the best out of yourself when the stakes are the highest? Hmm. I think it's lucky that I love competition. So I get really excited for the big, I get nervous. Don't get me wrong, but I also get really excited. I think the other thing that I learned as the years went on was that you can have races where you're in your best shape and the weather or the time of the race doesn't play out. And you can have races where it's a fast race and you're not ready to cover it. And so, for example, in Monaco in 2015, when I set the American record, that was an instance where I knew the race was set up to be fast, didn't guarantee it would be fast, but I knew that it it had the high likelihood of that. And I also knew I was in great shape. And by that point, I was nine years into my career or eight years, whatever it was. And so I also knew that when you get those two things, fitness and opportunity to align, that you just have to go for it. And I remember even in that race, though, all of my records that I've broken, there's always been a point in the middle of the race where I thought, this is either going to be amazing or horrible. <laughs> I ultimately chose to just plow ahead and commit. And that's not to say I haven't had that, you know, this is going to be amazing or horrible and had it turn out poorly because it has too. But you're not going to have that breakthrough unless you're just willing to let go of the finish and just focus on executing in that moment. And I think so much of it is just taking those opportunities as exciting opportunities, finding the fun in them. I've done that sometimes better than others, but probably if I look at those best races, it was like, I know I'm fit. I'm just going to go after it. The same with my 5k, you know, when I set the American record in that, I just come forth in Rio and was devastated by it, but knew I was in amazing shape and uh, felt the feelings of sadness, but then also headed to Europe and got myself through I think I did the Paris Diamond League first, but then went on to win the Zurich Diamond League final in the 15. And my coach was like, you're in great shape. Just go do this 5K. I think you can set the American record. And I was like, I haven't run a 5K in at least a year or two. But I just went in it and just said, I'm just going to give it what I have. And I think that it can be easy for me and for anyone to think so much about the outcome or worry about like, I feel crappy now. I don't know if I'm going to make it at the end. I know I'm guilty of that. But really, I had it in a workout today. It was a four-mile tempo where two laps in, I was like, oh. I just had my COVID (laughs) vaccine on Tuesday. I had the Moderna shot with the fever and all of that. And so I'm in this Uh, workout just like, (laughs) but, you know, it wasn't pretty, but I ran a great workout in the end. So sometimes it's just take it a lap at a time. And if, if you've got it, you'll deliver it. And if you don't, you can know that at least you put yourself out there. Like, I would rather fail having tried than regret or wonder. I feel like you just get in it the way you're describing it. You just go for it. You're in it. You want to see what happens. Either way, you're kind of like, I I don't know. Let's go for it. You know, (laughs) so it does have this feeling of you're just having fun, which I think is so important. And again, it kind of plays off of the whole idea that we talked about earlier, you know, performance. Mm -hmm. And really, if you want to have a good performance, you got to be a little bit loose. You got to be a little bit fun. You got to feel a little bit like, hey, I'm going to go out there and just let it fly and see what lands, you know, kind of a thing. So I think that's a big thing for people to try to take away from what you've done. And you've done it at a high level for so many years. Have fun. You got to ask. If we're not having fun, 
it's probably not going to turn it's out. It's a so long well. career. If you don't yeah. have fun, if you can't find balance, that was an early lesson I had as well. Yeah. A couple years into my pro career, I was like, I cannot sustain this intensity for a decade, let alone more. And I had to do yeah. my own kind of mental reset. I still have intensity, but I needed to figure out how to create space for myself to let go a bit. And so then I describe it like the pendulum. You can't swing this way if you don't swing that way. And so really trying to find that balance in life so that you can be ready and willing and in the right space mentally, physically, and heart when it matters most. Jen, I just want to say, you make it really easy for me to segue to my next question, because sometimes you just lead right into it before I even (laughs) am ready to ask it. I wanted to ask you about these other things you have in your life and how training is a fundamental thing. And and a lot of your life, I'm sure, is based around it and the time you're spending on it. But I want to ask you about this organization you've created called Imagining More. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how it ties into who you are and, and what you're trying to do with your life. Yeah, so my husband and I started Imagining More in 2012. It's a nonprofit focused on creating opportunities for women in sports and really expanding the narrative about what it means to be a woman in sports, which I'm now in 2021, the work that I'm doing, it's fun to know that we do so much about trying to tell the authentic stories of women in sports because they're so undertold and it's fun to be able to show that even in my own life, this is something that I've authentically cared about for many years. And Imagining More started, my husband and I were doing altitude training in Mexico. And I just remember being on the track doing a workout and noticing the PE class and the boys PE scrimmage was like really hearty and they were having fun. And the girls, when the ball would come towards them, they would get up. Otherwise they'd sit and talk and play with the daisies which was fine, but it took me back to being a kid where I never wanted to be an athlete because the only sports that I saw on TV were men's basketball, men's baseball, and men's football. And I couldn't see myself in any of those people. And the only time when I really could connect to sports was at the Olympics. And when I would see young women like myself competing, doing incredible things. And so with Imagining More, because my husband's from Mexico, we generally try to do programs with both US and Mexican athletes. And we've done a variety of projects from post-collegiate scholarships to help pay off student loans or like art projects on creating space for these young women to show what it means for them to be a woman in sports. And it's really segued, as I said, really organically into the work I'm doing now off the track, which is with an organization called Parity. And it's focused on creating more sponsorship opportunities for women in sports. Um, The statistic that we quote so often is that of the $66 billion spent globally every year on sports sponsorship, 99.6% of that is spent on men's sports, leaving only a tiny sliver of 0.4% for women's sports sponsorship. And so when you think about the stories that aren't being told, it's a whole lot of them. And then when you think about the consumer, which is 70 to 80% women, it also doesn't make business sense. And so we're focused on this influencer marketing, social media marketing space to start because it's really the most democratic of the kind of advertising and marketing spaces. And when we work with these women, we're trying to find brand partners that recognize the value of the female athlete voice. And so it's been great for me to find work outside of running that I can see myself having a future in that really ties to this through line of my entire career, you know, starting back at Duke where my master's work was in women's studies 
And then I had my nonprofit. I went to Morocco for the U.S. Department of State as a sports envoy for women's empowerment through sport and now working at Parity. I believe that we were put on this earth to leave it better than when we came. And uh, throughout my running career, I've tried to affect change where possible. And that is one thing that I hope and I intend as I finish off my running career to continue to try to find ways to reshape the sporting industry based on to create it to be a space that's more welcoming and inclusive of women's experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. (laughs) Well, my last thing I really wanted to ask you about is it relates to women's experiences in sport, and that is being a mom. So you had to make a decision at at some point, you're in the middle of your career to take a break effectively and have Mm -hmm. a kid. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what that's brought to you in terms of your life and your training and, and your perspective on what you're trying to do. Yeah, I had always thought I'd wait until I was done with running to have a kid because I was truly fearful of the consequences as an athlete trying to have a kid in sports. But because God willing, I was able to have such a long career, I got to the point at 33, where I knew I wanted to be a mom long before I ever wanted to be an athlete. And I was at the point where I didn't want to keep putting my life on hold for this career, no matter how much I loved it. And I'd also made a commitment to myself that when I did have a child, my daughter didn't ask to be born. I chose to bring a child into the world and I wanted to, as much as possible, make sure she knew that she was my first priority. And I'm trying to make it that she doesn't ever resent running because it took me away from her. Like I try to include her in what I'm doing as much as possible. And it brings me such joy that she gets to interact with world champions and Olympians and incredible, incredible people. But the experience of being pregnant was really, I mean, when I found out I was pregnant, I was probably more scared and upset than I was excited. I was excited by the reality set in of, you know, what does this mean as a primary earner for my family? What happens if I lose my health insurance? Because that at the time was based on performance. I had to earn it through my performance because I'm a contractor with Nike, as all athletes are, we're contractors, um, not employees. What happens if I don't meet my contract obligations? Because at the time there were no stipulations for maternity or no protections for maternity. And so even at the national level, maternity, which should be its own class of policy is instead housed within disability, which makes no sense to me when you think about (laughs) the incredible act of building and growing a human. And so when I look at the sporting industry, the history of women in sports is very short. Title IX was passed in the 70s. The first collegiate athlete in my sport at Duke didn't come until the 80s. And so my life has paralleled this life really of women in sports. But I think that our current generation are in a unique position where there's enough contracts or they're not even, but they're big enough that you could potentially create a career for yourself. You could potentially be the primary earner and have the responsibility of supporting a family. And yet when it comes to having a child, only one person can wear can wear that hat yeah, and do that yeah. job. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that I'm really proud of was the maternity policy that USA Track and Field has. Like I said, at the time when I was pregnant, I had to earn my health insurance through my performance. And I had shared that before I even got pregnant, I had a conversation with my coach, Pete Julian, about how I wanted to start a family, but I was afraid of the consequences. And that was back in, I want to say 2016. And he remembered that conversation and had mentioned it to Vin Lanana, who was the president at the time. And Vin Lanana was like, oh, 
wow, I didn't even think about the fact that an athlete could lose their health insurance for maternity. They should do something about that. So that led to a conversation with Rose Monday, who's the women's track and field chair. And through our conversation, she put together a committee of constituents to get thoughts and opinions on, did they believe this was a good idea? What should that policy look like? And then also working behind the scenes to have conversations to ensure that ultimately what we presented at the national meeting had already been seen by other people and conditionally approved. And I'm really proud to say that resulted in December of 2018 with the first ever NGB maternity policy that USATF was really groundbreaking and passing. It ensured that our female athletes would have health insurance, I believe it's 18 months postpartum. And so, you know, it's a small step, but a really important step. And trying to think about the sporting world, which has so many wonderful aspects, but really has been built to serve a certain group and trying to expand it to be more inclusive, to create opportunities for all of our athletes, in this case, for our women to be able to live a full life and come back. And, you know, I came back and I've so far run the Olympic standard twice. I've set the master's American record. If you create a structure for success, our women will come back and do amazing things, but we really need to make it a more supportive, inclusive system. Shannon, I didn't want to interrupt you. I agree with everything that you're saying. And I love that you made the decision you made and you pushed to help make the changes that need to be made. And, and it fits with what you're talking about when you're diagnosing a problem. You know, you had a bunch of problems, but you fixed the stress fracture and then let's figure out what to do next. And in the same way, it's like, well, let's fix the thing that we can fix and then let's figure out mm-hmm. what to do next. And just yeah. and, and treating it in the same mentality, I feel makes a lot of yeah. sense. You know, speaking with you is really fun. I've enjoyed it. I, we need to kind of wrap up and we always wrap up the same way. And that is with the, the questions. Our brand is Go Be More. What do the words Go Be More mean to you? For me, I think the through line of my career is trying to be a trailblazer, not necessarily setting out to be a trailblazer, but looking back and realizing that I've done things that you know maybe that others haven't thought of, kind of going back to our coming at it with a different mindset. When I look at 2008, when I came onto the scene, coming off of my stress fracture, the previous kind of middle distance US squad was struggling to make finals. And I came onto the scene in 2008. I ran four minutes, which was significantly faster than my peers at the time. I went on to make the Olympic final coming in, I believe it was seventh. And the next year got bronze at the world championships. And I wasn't the only one, but I'm really proud to have been someone that didn't let the norms around me set my expectations for myself. And that instead it was really, how can I go be more? How can I be the best version of myself? And as much as possible, trying to define what that is rather than what has been. And so, yeah, to me, go be more is being a trailblazer. I love that answer, Shannon. I really do. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. I'll let John close it up, but I just want to say thank you for joining us. It's been really, honestly, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. I've enjoyed watching your career and and I hope it keeps going for as long as you can keep it going. And I want to wish you the best of luck in your training and qualifying for Tokyo 2021. I'm hoping to see you here. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure too. I really enjoyed this. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'll just end it by saying I couldn't be happier for you and how your career has unfolded clearly learned so much from your journey thus far. I love this conversation. I'm so excited for us to be able to share it. And the work that you're talking about, the work that you're doing, I can confidently say that our brand is so much about 
things like this in society, you know, and so building a platform where we can continue to elevate your voice and voices like yours is an honor. And we're so grateful for you sharing so much insight. It's very educational, very informative, and it's these kinds of conversations that we need to continue to have so that we can all go be more. And so with that, thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you so much too. I appreciate the creating space for these conversations because they're the ones that need to be had and I'm proud to be a part of it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks guys. Hey everybody. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you to Michelle at Creatives Collective Marketing for production assistance. You can send us feedback directly about this episode by emailing brian at gobimore.co. Be sure to leave us a rating and review and even easier, tell a friend about it. Then, stop by our shop at gobemore.co and pick up a t-shirt to help remind you to stay committed to chasing your dreams every day. For all of us at Gobemore, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.